Cedric Martin and I'll be your host. Each episode we're going to take a closer look at the book Peaceful at Heart, Anabaptist Reflections on Healthy Masculinity. We'll dive into the chapters, hear from the authors, and think a little bit more about what healthy masculinity might look like in our modern context. Joining us today is John Powell. John, thank you for your work on this book so we can discuss it today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing very well today. Thanks for spending some time with us. No problem. No problem. I, I wanted to say that I, I really appreciated your perspective and your approach to your chapter. Uh, the title of your chapter is Becoming Men of Peace and Reconciliation. Uh, a quote related to that title that stood out to me was, peace will not be achieved as long as men continue to embrace male dominance. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, well, actually, from the beginning of human existence, um, men have always assumed some position of dominance. I mean, we've been perceived as hunters in the hunter and gathering kind of a motif and so forth. And so um, we've always been uh, competitors for livelihood, frankly. Um, and that has uh, somehow given us a perception of needing to be dominant. Mm. Um, we've been perceived as the protector, both of our families and, and of the environment, and pretty much put in control. I mean, if you look at scripture from in the very, very beginning, man was created uh, and given dominance and so forth. And that has created, frankly, has created uh, some real difficulties for us. Um, it has been enhanced by our religious beliefs. Actualization process has led us to being perceived as um, as needing to protect and needing to. Uh, be the what I consider to be the alpha dog, and uh, that has created significant uh, relational issues for us. We just, I think, we just need to proceed to find a way to try to de-escalate uh, that concept for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now that makes sense. Thank you. Now. Uh, in your chapter, John, you do an you know, excellent job of laying out your personal and also national experiences of race. Uh, you say, doing a self-assessment requires discovering what's at stake, not only for ourselves, but also for the other. Now, uh, a bit of a disclaimer, I can say from my own experience that self-assessment work is important work. Uh, I can acknowledge times where I was racist and I wasn't a good neighbor. Um, I, I grew up in a school that was entirely white. Uh, it wasn't a private school, it was a publicly funded elementary school, but I, I say all this to say that I'm continuing to work on myself and becoming anti-racist. Now, back to your chapter, John, you then go on to say that the emotional pain that 
white men and men of color experience are real and, and having a tremendous impact on how they respond to racial stimuli, stimuli. But both need healing. John, what can that healing look like? Wow. Um, the pain for both of us are great. I mean, it's... it's um, and for different reasons, frankly, um, for white people and for white men, particularly, uh, is great because we have assumed a, a dominant role while at the same time uh, have assumed a racist role in the process. Uh, when I think about that, Men of color are afraid, mm. and they have a right reason to be afraid. Um, both men are perceive themselves as being dominant. I mean, that's the way in, in which our society has placed us. Um, because of what what we perceive as racial superiority and racial inferiority. Uh, white men are afraid for a different reason. They are afraid of being, in quote, displaced. Uh, and that um, their dominant role in society will no longer exist. Uh, people of color, on the other hand, are fearing for their lives. And, um, and in fact, um, that fear, as I've indicated, is... It's understood. Um, given that uh, we have been socialized in such a way um, to perceive ourselves as being dominant. And by the way, uh, another issue here has to do with the role in which uh, dominance has played within the, within. Uh, people of color communities, and particularly African-American communities, where um, women have been perceived as dominant within, even within mm. that particular society as well, that particular culture, has created another layer that um, people of color, and particularly African-American, I can really speak for African-American um, communities in a number of ways, not all. Not all of African American communities, but certainly the ones that I know, mm -hmm. where um, where growing up, um, women were given higher priority, and so which has somehow, uh, in a number of ways, have created a chasm between um, that particular community and between, uh, and so um, white men have taken advantage of that. Uh, and in taking advantage of it, um, uh, there again is that fear of losing control. So what does that healing look like? Um, it's, it's really it's difficult to say what it looks like for everyone. But I can say what it probably looks like for me. Um, look. Uh, for me, is um, being able to recognize um, that I need to break the cycle. Mm. 
breaking the cycle is really difficult. Um, it begins, first of all, at looking at um, what it is that has led you and led us to where we are right now. How have I contributed to that? What does what does that cycle do to me, and what does it do to my community? Um, how do I keep from uh, being an alpha dog? What I continue to be an alpha, an alpha syndrome in a number of ways. Um, it means also being vulnerable. Uh, and being vulnerable is really difficult because there are two sides that all of us have. There is the masculine side and then there is the feminine side. Most of us don't want to admit that we have a feminine side. Mm. And we don't want to let it go come out because we will be perceived as, as in quote, sissy. <laughs> uh, we don't want to be called names. We don't want to be um, isolated and uh, ridiculed for who we think we are and so forth. But it means being open to ourselves to examine and being open to being examined by other people as well. And, and not, having, not having that real fear uh, and being ready to, frankly, put that fear aside. And that, that's difficult. That is really extremely difficult to do. Yeah, yeah. So I, I hear you talking about how we need to balance sort of the, the bravery it takes to be vulnerable. Uh, that's that's a, an interesting thought to take with us. Yeah. It, uh, John, it can feel a little counterintuitive when we're, we're trying to move forward, but to acknowledge the times when we were wrong, when we were racist in the past. But in your chapter, you say that Reconciliation is dependent on our recognition that we are part of the problem. What advice would you give to those that have read your chapter? They're now listening to this interview. Is it enough to just start by calling out our past behavior? Advice? Wow. I don't know if I can really give advice. Um. I think I can probably say, no, it's not enough to, um, to call out our past behaviors. Um, to do that is to frankly, to do nothing. Mm. Uh, I think it's just as important to um, explore the current reality that are there and begin to address what you're seeing and what you're witnessing. Um, um, we need to look at uh, what privileges our in quote, quote maleness has given us um, because it's given us a lot it's given us a lot and we need to ask, um, ask ourselves the critical question that I addressed in, the, in, the, in this chapter what keeps me from owning my involvement is that it's kind of a self-examination because we all have part of the problem. It's almost like um, 
that every one of us who live on this planet, and particularly males who are finding themselves in a, in quote, perceived environment, uh, have a lot to lose, but at the same time have a lot to gain. And so when we see ourselves as part of the problem, we also can begin to realize that if a solution is ever going to happen, if it's going to be found, it's going to begin with us. So I, I can't answer that for everyone. I really can't. Um, but um, there are some things that we need to recognize that gives us power. Um, economic resources, um, prestige, and certain kinds of freedom that exist. Um, we need to begin by exploring and accepting the truth that we don't have all of the truth. Mm. Uh, by the way, one of the things that I, I, and this is a self kind of admission for me, is that um, growing up, uh, I had to re realize that uh, Everyone that I, even though I wanted everyone to be like me, everyone is not going to be like me. Um, because some people just, when you look at different foods, people don't like different foods. So I have to be ready to accept what other people bring to the table. And I have to be ready to partake of that, what other people are bringing to the table. And that's difficult. That is extremely difficult. Um, that will be it will be different for everyone, and I think, but uh, however, we have a each one of us have a part to play, and we have to be ready to accept that part that has been given to us. That's beautiful. I was as you were talking about how we each have sort of a a piece of the problem, I was picturing some sort of beautiful mosaic or or puzzle that could come together if if we start learning to to accept each other and work together. Yeah, right. Thank you, John. I, I really appreciate that that imagery that came for me, and, and uh, uh, I, I think I got a lot to take out of that. John, um, what kind of role does masculinity play uh, in your faith, and, and what kind of role could it play in the church? Well, growing up, believe it or not, <laughs> Uh, I grew up in a very patriarchal community. It was a community where men particularly uh, fought, but they also protected each other. And um, like most, the role of men were very seldom questioned. I mean, we knew that we were, in quote, the protector of the society, um, that we needed to act. Um, even if we acted badly, we needed to find a way to somehow make excuses for ourselves acting badly and so forth. Um, and even if we, um, even if we acted badly, uh, we also had to somehow assume that it was good. There was something that was good about it. 
uh, I knew that if I was going to be an effective leader, both within my community and the family and, uh, and in the church, that I had to somehow modify what I was seeing and experiencing in my community. Um, one of the things that um, very early that I started learning was that I needed to look for external sources for what that model might look like. And we, I think there, there's something that we, need, we will probably talk about later on that. But um, it was for me that my Christian faith was, is, is really important. Um, and um, I had to explore how that Christian faith was formulated and who was I serving in the process. And, um, and again, I needed to break that cycle. Hmm. And I think that's exactly what uh, men need to do. And at least for me, um, as a Christian, um, I explored what, how Jesus responded to nationalities, um, how he ex explored to um, gender inequities and so forth. One of the one of the, uh, the pieces, one of the parables, actually it wasn't a parable. It was um, an engagement that Jesus had uh, with uh, the Samaritan woman. Was was it was a key element for me in terms of helping me think through breaking that cycle, um, and where in fact Jesus offers her water <laughs> and that water that was being offered was different than the water that she had had before and i i started looking at that and asking myself what was that water and that water was in fact self-respect the feeling that she was loved and that she belonged and that she was needed and so forth um jesus was a man for all seasons in my estimation and so that's what it looks like for me. It's mean, it looks like following Jesus, being in step with Jesus, and doing the kinds of things that Jesus would have me to do. How does that, what does that mean for the church? By the way, Jesus also gave up power. Mm. <laughs> he did not assume that he had to have power, even though people were assuming that you have to have power, that you need to have power in order to make it within the Roman structure. Jesus did not assume that. And for the church, <laughs> I would say that's probably one of the pivotal pieces that we probably need to address is that we don't need to have the power, that the power is within every individual that exists within that congregation. And so if power exists within the hands of the people, then obviously, <laughs> obviously, we are going to share that power. And as we are sharing that power, it means that the less, uh, the less that we are prone to become 
more vicious in our interactions with each other. Thus, violence is somehow um, beginning to be eliminated. So mm-hmm. that's what I mean. That's what I think it means for me. Thank you. Yeah, I, I can uh, see that, and I I want to think more about what does what does breaking the cycle mean for myself too. So I I appreciate your response there. Now, John, you say releasing ourselves from society's expectations of traditional manhood with aggressive behavior is the key that opens the gates to peace. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? How do we get there? Um, I would say role models and expectations have been uh, drawn to us and been given to us from very early childhood. As a matter of fact, uh, from birth, um, we have been, um, there are certain expectations that we have. Um, is expected as an example. Um, men, boys don't cry. We give girls permission to cry. <laughs> uh, but boys don't cry. You, you get up and you take your lumps and you go on and um, you find other ways of dealing with it. Um, we are expected to behave in certain ways and if not, we are ostracized. Um, everyone wants to be liked. Yeah. I, I certainly do um, <laughs> want to be liked. And I want to be included and I want to be appreciated and so forth. Um, but somehow there is that expectation that we have to be what I consider to be manly men. <laughs> Uh, and, and being manly mean, men means uh, exercising power, power over everything that is that we have possible control over. How do we get there? Well, I think that's a good question. How do we uh, get to the place where there is peace? And I think I've uh, alluded to that earlier is that it is it goes by it starts by self-examination mm. uh and it starts by admitting that other people have part of the truth that we don't have all of the truth uh it also means being and and this is one of the things it's possible it's very possible that us older men it's too late for us. But it is not too late for the younger generation, the younger men. And that we need to be um, advocates for change for them. We need to be men, uh, mentors for them. Um, and very honestly, as part of that mentoring process, I think we need to begin to to institute some rituals. Um, uh, Rituals that, uh, uh, rites of passage rituals that 
give us some real meaning about what it really means to be a, <laughs> to be a man. I mean, I when I was growing up, one of the things that that um, my dad did um, was took me into the. He took me hunting, and it was a ritual. Um, he first of all showed me how to use a gun, and what a gun was used for, and what it um, it was not necessarily for. Um, your own protection, but it was for survival, um, for killing uh, animals that were um, for food. Um, and in doing so, there was that bond. And so one of the things that he gave me was a rifle. I was 13 years old. And what I'm saying is that there are rituals that that go along with us saying to men, uh, you don't have to observe what other people are expecting of you. You can change and you can be who you have been taught to be and emulate uh, good role models. So I think that's how, um, how we began that, to enter that, what I would consider to be entering the gates and get, get knocking on the gates and so forth. Yeah, thank you for that. John, you, you talked a little bit about your, your dad just there too, but uh, what, what role models did you have growing up and did they leave any impact on your vision of healthy masculinity? Oh yeah. Well, I I I um I just mentioned my dad. <laughs> my dad was probably the greatest influence on me. Um he was very gentle. Um he used words instead of fist. Mm -hmm. Uh, he knew how to use his fist if need be. But he says, he told me that um, that was not the answer to uh, getting along with people. He needed to find some alternative. My, my dad had a third grade ed education, which interestingly enough. Uh, but he had witnessed from, from his father who was a slave, what it really meant uh, to experience, <laughs> to experience violence mm. and how the, uh, how a number of the slaves responded uh, and, but began to coalesce around a, a common set of values of helping each other. And so that was who, that was who my dad was. Um, yeah, there were there were certain times that my dad would get angry, and that people would know that they needed to step away from it. But one of the things that my dad said to me as I was growing up, he, he said, um, 
son, just because you see other people acting like a fool, you don't have to act like a fool. <laughs> and so I remembered that. Um, and um, the other, <laughs> probably from a spiritual standpoint, as I've talked about it, is, is, is Jesus. Jesus was very, um, his, his teachings were key to who I was to become uh, and who I, frankly, am right now. And, and, and if I looked at another person, uh, that other person would probably be Dr. King. Um, his dedication to nonviolent, um, non-resistance um, was key for my nonviolent acti activities and so forth. Um, both Jesus and my dad uh, and Dr. King taught me that I could be both a hunter and a gatherer. That I didn't have to be ashamed of being either one. That both were important. So admitting that um, we need each other uh, to rid ourselves of destructive behavior. Um, as I mentioned in my in uh, in the um, beginning of, uh, I think that we need to need to look at those individuals in our past and even in our present who are role models and begin to and can begin to influence who we are. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, John. I really appreciate that. Uh, unfortunately we are uh, out of time here, but I I've really appreciated hearing your perspective on on your chapter and, and from your life. Um, and I'd also like to thank you for the, the decades of, of racial justice work that you've done that, that led us to talking today, John. Uh, before we go, did you have any sending thoughts for us? Sending thoughts. Um, yeah. Um, I think it's important to learn from the past of how our masculinity and in the way in which we currently perceive it has affected our relationships with each other. Uh, and how the surroundings would be different if we would, first of all, begin to find a way of letting ourselves be vulnerable. We don't have to be afraid to live into an egalitarian relationship. Um, we don't have to be afraid to live into um, what it means to be joined together, both as um, racial groups and nationalities and as um, and as genders, various genders, we don't need to be afraid of each other as men. 
And by the way, and I, I really think that as men, we are frankly afraid of each other. That's one of the reasons I think that we have <laughs> have war. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm trying to remember, uh, think of how many um, how many wars have been started by women? I don't think that I don't think that I can think of any yet that has been started by women. As a matter of fact, um, I remember reading um, uh, Lissa Strata, which was a play, in fact, where women stopped men from fighting each other. They did it in a very difficult, different way and so forth. But again, that feminine side of us, I think we have we need to let that come out and let it um, let it show. Um, as I have mentioned in the beginning um, of the chapter, um, all communities, our communities have changed. Um, and it is continually evolving and it's going to continue to evolve. Uh, if we are to coexist, we can't deny about how we act and how we perceive the current reality. And, and we have to also admit that uh, as men, we have a role to play. And what we need to do is to take our equal share of the burden in helping that along. So that would be my thoughts. Thank you, John. Really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that you have a great day. You too. Take care. Peaceful at Heart was recorded in the city of Takaranto, the land covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. This is the Dish with One Spoon territory. The Dish with One Spoon is a treaty between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee that bound them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequent indigenous nations and peoples, Europeans, and all newcomers have been invited into this treaty in the spirit of peace, friendship, and respect. We all eat out of the dish, and all of us that share this territory with one spoon. We want to acknowledge the ancestral lands and waterways of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Seneca, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Takaranto is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We wish to thank them and any other nations who cared for this land. Colonization is a continuing form of oppression so it is important that we acknowledge the lands and digital spaces that we are holding and taking up. We remember the acknowledged and unacknowledged, recorded and unrecorded, past, present, and future. We are all treaty people. Peaceful at Heart was produced and edited by myself, Cedric Martin. It was made possible thanks to Mennonite Central Committee, Mennonite Church Eastern Canada, Be in Christ, Church of Canada, Theatre of the Beat, and of course, by Mennonite Men. To find more resources, head to MennoniteMen.org.